The Fitness Reborn podcast is a companion piece to Renaissance Fitness personal training. This podcast is to serve as educational and entertainment purposes only. It does not in any way constitute as medical advice. If you have a medical concern, please seek out your provider. What's up, internet fitness family? This is the Fitness Reborn podcast. I'm Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training, where we put movement ahead of workouts. And I've got my guest today is Anne Metz. She is a psychotherapist, a researcher, educator who focuses specifically on psychedelics here. And I think that's pretty much what we're going to spend a lot of our discussion here talking about psychedelics. This has come up a couple times with some previous guests before. Um, it's always been pretty interesting to hear what they have to say and to hear how it's kind of, it seems to be kind of blooming here as a one, as an industry in its own right, and two, not only an industry, but a therapeutic industry. So, Anne, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Sean. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to have you here. So I want to hear more on this. Everyone seems to have a little bit of a different take. Everyone has a little bit of a different background. So I'm really psyched to hear what you have to say on this. So, I mean, when I was reading through your background, um, when I invited you on here, you said your personal experience through psychedelics and your introduction into it was pretty cool on its own. Mm. So, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, like a lot of people, when I was in college, I tried psychedelics um, and, you know, I thought it was an interesting experience. It certainly wasn't something that I felt like, oh gosh, I really want to do that again. Uh, and so I kind of had forgotten about I sort of didn't really think about it for a really long time until Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, came out. Um, hmm. I think that was maybe 2018, 2017, something like that, when that book came out, um, which is, of course, uh, really the first book about a uh, popular book that's about the use of uh, psychedelics for therapeutic purposes. Um, and at the time, I was working as just a psychotherapist. I was also in grad school working on my PhD. And, you know, one of the things I was just really getting frustrated with was that there weren't a whole lot of, you know, technologies out there, if you were to use that term, uh, to sort of support psychotherapy. Uh, if, any, if you've been in therapy or anyone who's listening, it's really, really difficult to do. And for a lot of people, you kind of do a little bit of work and then you sort of hit this wall and, and um whether or not you can kind of get through it or you get stuck on it is really um, can be a real challenge. And so as I was reading this book, it started getting my mind going about like, oh my gosh, well, maybe this is exactly the thing I had been hoping would be out there. Some sort of way for people to sort of push through um, what felt like the kind of blockages and walls that we would bump up in therapy. Um, you know, and when I was reading it, I was on this road trip out in the West. Uh, and of course things are, always a little bit different out in California than they were where I was living at the time in Virginia and, um, you know, tried some psychedelic mushrooms and had a really, you know, the experience itself wasn't that powerful, but kind of the um, idea that came to me afterwards was a really profound one. And it was just this idea that, um, you know, I didn't need to wait for my life to get better. I could sort of choose the life that I really wanted. Um, which doesn't sound like it's all that profound, but I think for me at that time, um, for a variety of reasons, that felt like it was really a huge revelation. Uh, and I started working with the therapist that I was seeing at that time to kind of think about what that means for my life and how I might 
uh, integrate that into my relationships, into my professional life, into my spiritual life. Um, and, you know, it really set me on a new course. And I really think that that was sort of the start of something big. And so I see that potential for, for people who are interested in this, that this can be a transformative, life-changing thing that you can do and you can do it once and it can be really impactful that way. So it's very exciting time. Yeah. You said that uh, therapy sessions, and I agree, therapy sessions can be pretty difficult to sit through both for I for patient and therapist, I have to think, but because I've been through it myself too. And I, you know, obviously the purpose of why you're there can make things difficult in itself, but you know, you're talking to somebody, maybe you just met, you see a couple times a week, and then it takes a long time to really kind of get into anything that's helpful because there's a honeymoon phase you got to get through first. Mm -hmm. um, and depending on what you're there for and what you're going to talk about, it can be um, very long indeed. But how does psychedelics help people get through, get through it a bit quicker and a bit easier? Is it just a matter of lowering inhibitions? Yeah, I think that's sort of part of it. Um, you know, I've heard people um, sort of use the analogy of saying that it's a psychotherapy lubricant, that it just makes it sort of happen more easily. Um, and it does, it, it lowers what we would call your sort of ego defenses. Um, and so you think about someone who has uh, a history of trauma, for example, uh, what we know about the treatment of trauma is that people have this habit of avoiding thinking about the trauma, avoiding places that maybe remind them of the trauma. Um, and that that becomes this sort of way of coping with something that's very threatening psychologically. Um, and so essentially what we're doing is we're asking people to do the most threatening possible thing in therapy, which is to revisit something that was tremendously terrible and distressing and was um, kind of like world shattering. Uh, and so with psychedelics, uh, it creates this space where some of your inhibitions are lowered, but you're also in this sort of set and setting of a therapeutic container. So you have a person there that is well-trained, that is trustworthy, um, that you've kind of navigated all the ins and outs of what's going to happen beforehand. Uh, and it just makes it easier, I think, for people to kind of uh, allow the natural healing process to take course. Um, so I guess that's kind of a general high level overview of how it really helps. Um, you know, each of the different psychedelics work in different ways. Um, and so it, I think it's a little bit specific and obviously, you know, what you're going in there for um, makes a difference too. But I think uh, one of the more exciting things is that it really can um, be a spiritual experience as well too. And that, that in and of itself can be like a healing, uh, kind of a healing moment in one's life. So. So just to play devil's advocate a little bit, and I'm just not I'm not throwing this at you to be antagonistic or to just fight with you. But mm -hmm. if if we're talking about like just lowering someone's inhibitions and just kind of helping, you know, giving them something that's helping to kind of break through this veil so they can deal so they can actually get the problems out there so they can be dealt with so this highly trained individual can help this person navigate through their trauma. If we're talking mm -hmm. about just breaking through that, why can't you just resort to say like alcohol? Why can't you just break <laughs> out some break out some beers and just do and do and do the same thing? You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, I guess I've never really thought about like that, but certainly, you know, in the history of therapy, 
there have been other things that have made use of that idea of lowering inhibitions. You know, hypnosis is a great example of that. Oleotropic breath work is another one. Um, I think uh, the reason we sort of don't really do it is that maybe the inhibit, it's less about having kind of your inhibitions just lowered and more being about like able to have your defenses kind of lowered while you're still able to be articulate and go inside and, um, you know, articulate what your feelings are and what you're noticing and kind of being present. And I would say alcohol doesn't really do a great job of that. <laughs> it, I, 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 I tend to agree. I just yeah. kind of want cause I was just, I wanted to kind of one, the idea came to me as you were speaking and two, I just want to kind of clarify what the difference is here between therapeutic psychedelics and things that actually are, are helpful to you, not just chemically, but psychologically. And yeah. alcohol, I mean, I don't drink at all. So I agree. Alcohol is not helpful in mm. so many, in so many different ways, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I really just wanted to hear your take on that. So, yeah. And, you know, I think with alcohol, as you were sort of saying that, um, you know, and, and really with any of these drugs, I think the kind of importance is the set and setting that you're sort of mindset is to get something therapeutic out of it and to have mm -hmm. an internal experience and the setting of course is one of the therapeutic container. And so, um, you know, you can certainly like use psychedelics, you could use, you know, ketamine, which is the legal one right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and you could use it at a party and you could use it to sort of escape yourself. Um, but when we're using psychedelics therapeutically, it's really an invitation to go inside and to um, kind of deepen your kind of content with what's contact with what's happening internally. Um, so I think that's really one of the big differences. Um, you know, obviously all of these uh, medicines can be used for fun and for escape, but the point of this is really to do the opposite uh, to really connect with yourself. So how do you know the difference between like someone who is, this, I mean, outside of like a therapeutic environment, which you're, you're there for the help, you yeah. know, you're not, you're not just hanging out with your butt sitting in a circle and getting stoned. You are, you know, I guess that maybe is the difference between what's therapeutic and what's not therapeutic. Um, but ketamine assisted psychotherapy. Okay. So you mentioned that and you mentioned that was one of the types of the one that's kind of more mainstream or legalized now, if that's co the correct term to use. Talk to us more about mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So ketamine is a, um, you know, drug that has been around for a really long time. It's used frequently um, in anesthesia. So if you've ever mm. had general anesthesia, chances are you probably have had the experience of having ketamine in your system. Um, it is a drug we know a lot about. It's very cheap. Um, and it has been, uh, used at, we would kind of call it off label for mental health purposes for probably about, I don't know, 15 years. Um, and there was recently FDA, I guess it was actually not recently. It was in 2019, 2020, um, the FDA approved a form of ketamine. That's like a nasal spray called, um, Spravato, which is FDA approved for treatment resistant depression. So these are the sort of two main things. So there's sort of the off label use, maybe will you receive a ketamine clinic that does uh, infusions or shots, and then also the places that prescribe um, ketamine lozenges for use in office with a therapist or use at home. Um, so that's kind of what the landscape is right now. Um, you know, there are certainly more medicines or drugs or investigational products, I guess I should call them, 
uh, that are coming down the pipeline in the next couple of years. So I think the landscape is going to really, really change once that happens. But for now, this is kind of where we're at, that if you're interested in having an above ground legal experience, you're going to probably have cap. So. So how do you use it in your practice? Yeah. So um, I really uh, have found that cap has been a real game changer for the work that I do. Um, So, you know, typically people who come to see me have other therapists that they're seeing. You know, I really think that that's kind of important to have uh, a normal person and have that therapeutic relationship and that people come to me for what we would call kind of an adjunct treatment. So you're interested in doing some cap work and um, I would meet with someone for a couple of sessions. We would sort of talk about what their goals are, what their experiences have been using psychedelics, um, talk about intentions and what they hope to get out of it. Um, and then we would have a series of um, what we would call experiential sessions or dosage session- sessions where someone would be in my office or um, you know, in their home. Sometimes occasionally I'll do kind of in-home treatments uh, and people will, you know, I'll be sort of sitting there and I'll be present and they'll sort of take the ketamine and they'll kind of go inside and we'll have music and an eye mask. And it's a very sort of supportive therapeutic experience. Uh, at the end, you know, there's a snack and we maybe talk a little bit, but that lasts about two hours. And then afterwards we'll have what we would call an integration session, which is when, um, you know, probably the next day we would have a conversation about what came up and depending on someone's needs and what they're, um, you know, really looking for, we would either do that we would probably repeat that process a couple of times. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's useful for um, a variety of, you know, mental health symptoms, things people have going on. But, you know, I'm, I'm also really excited about, you know, the capacity people have for, um, you know, really connecting creatively with themselves, with nature, with, um, you know, their spirituality. So that's kind of a nice piece of it as well, too. Um, yeah. So that's how it works. And then, you know, people can come back again. And um, I also have people who come. Uh, I live in a really, really beautiful spot in northern New Mexico called Taos. And we have this great ski resort here. And so sometimes people will sort of fly in from elsewhere or come in from elsewhere and do, you know, uh, what we would call an immersive um, where we would work for a couple of days and then they would kind of go back to their life. So that's sort of another way that things work. Is that the uh, is that the retreats you also host as well because you did mention you you uh you do retreats too right yeah i do that i do retreats i don't have any group retreats sort of lined up right now but for folks who are interested in doing um an individual intensive somewhere in somewhere that is very healing and is very kind of spiritually potent and beautiful and filled with fun outdoor activities um yeah i think it's a really great option um to be able to offer that um how many retreats do you normally host in a year Uh, I haven't had one. I haven't had one this year. I'm thinking I might do one that's for couples um, in another year or so. Um, Yeah, it's a little bit of a logistical challenge in terms of figuring out like a space to host it because it is a rural community and being able to figure that out. But I do think there's a lot to be said for sort of the group experience, you know, that uh, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. And and it's really magical having people in a group setting um, do some cap work there, too. So generally, I, I, I avoid talking politics, but I think that 
kind of something we have to touch on here if we're talking about, you know, the use of substances for therapeutic reasons. I mean, obviously, we have tons and tons and tons of mainstream, you know, FDA approved medications and whatnot that are given out very regularly to people for any number of reasons. Um, but when we're talking about psychedelics here, we're talking about, you know, altering someone's state of mind, mm. um, at, at least momentarily for, uh, maybe an hour or two to kind of breach, um, through their trauma to help them with their mental health. Um, mental health on its own is controversial and political because it's mm. largely not given the, uh, respect and money that it needs. <laughs> and but, Preaching to the choir on that one. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 I know. And I'm just kind of talking out loud here too. Um, but it's it, it seems like, maybe I'm wrong, it seems like a very political thing to mm. get into. And it's a hot button because I know just, you know, because of this country and its attitude towards drugs in general of any kind. Mm. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think that it, our country and attitudes toward drugs in general has been um, part of my own process, uh, you know, I think two years ago, if you had said, will you come on my podcast and talk about psychedelic therapy? I would have been like, <laughs> absolutely not. I have a job at a university. Yeah. I'm going to get fired. Um, and so I think, um, you know, my feeling is that um, the positive press has really gone a long way towards sort of helping people, you know, maybe shift their thinking or be a little bit more open to the possibility that this could be a helpful therapeutic um, thing out there. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, psychiatric medications uh, for treating mental disorders, it's really about symptom reduction. And anybody who tells you that it's not is being dishonest. And so, um, you know, if we think about symptom reduction, like, okay, it might reduce your anxiety, it might help you sleep. But if there's there's a reason that anxiety is there. There's a reason that sleeplessness is there. And if we don't really address the root cause of what is fueling that, it's just going to keep coming back. And so for me, the paradigm is a really important shift towards actually sort of healing some of the underlying causes of what, you know, fuels distress in people and what makes us suffer and how, um, you know, we find ourselves with depression and with anxiety and with PTSD. Um, and so I just think it's, um, you know, to me, I think that the prospect of, you know, do you want to take a pill for the every day for the rest of your life? Or would you like to go in and, you know, work really hard for a couple of months here and hopefully make some headways and really improve your life? Um, to me, it feels like it's an obvious choice to, um, you know, do something that is actually going to address the kind of underlying causes. Um, and yeah, for sure, it's a very political thing. Even within the field, there's a lot of politics around who is going to be eligible to do this. Um, and obviously, these, you know, for a lot of these medicines, they have traditions with indigenous cultures. And there's, a, I think, a really legitimate critique that, um, you know, that this is appropriation without giving adequate acknowledgement or adequate compensation to the sort of traditions that have been using these medicines and healing ceremonies for, you know, generations. So um, a lot is a lot left to be seen there. I mean, I think Oregon is a really interesting test case right now because the state has obviously 
created a, a sort of state-run pathway for people to have psilocybin therapy. But of course, psilocybin is still Schedule One, which means that it's federally regular. Federally, it's considered to have no therapeutic use, and so there's a real, you know, state versus federal government complication here. Um, and you wouldn't think that that would be all that problematic, but it becomes a big deal when you start to think about like banking and tax law and, you know, if something is federally illegal, are you allowed to like write off a training that's related to it? So it's a very thorny subject that I think is really going to be interesting in the next couple of years. Um, and that's not even talking about like the spiritual churches that are doing you know, that, you know, establish a psychedelic church, you know, that becomes a First Amendment issue. Uh, and can the government shut you down? Um, we will get lots of cases of those, I think, in coming years. This sounds a lot like, like this, uh, this emergence of psychedelics, this actually sounds a lot like what was talked about and thrown around a lot about in, about marijuana, mm. like 20, 25 years ago. And, you know, there was, again, there was a conflict between federal and state authorities. Certain states were saying, okay, under controlled circumstances, you know, we can uh, subscribe this and allow this. But then the federal government, you know, said, said well, you know, under federal law, this is still illegal. And so mm -hmm. mar marijuana for medicinal use or otherwise. And now, you know, you see it now, in, even in the state that I live in, in Iowa, which is rapidly becoming more and more of a conservative state mm. um it is this industry as small as it still is it is growing day by day yeah um, do you agree yeah i mean i think there are lots of uh analogies to be drawn and parallels to be drawn with the uh, legalization of cannabis um you know i think i would like to think that we've learned some important lessons about um money and power and how to kind of roll this out in a way that is more equitable. Um, but, you know, it, good intentions are really hard to pull through. I mean, Oregon has been a great test case where they were really committed to, um, you know, supporting, you know, minority and kind of women businesses in the state um, just because uh, the money from the cannabis industry, you know, was in the hands of just a couple of large corporations and, you know, it tended to be sort of white and male, um, the people who profited from it. And so there's been, I think, an intentional attempt to do that. Has it worked? I don't know. I mean, I think if you look at, you know, reviews of, of the Oregon program so far, it has not been terribly successful. You know, it's just cost prohibitive and really expensive and really complicated and, um, and yeah, um, you know, there could certainly be a backlash. And I think a big part of what we need to worry about is people being harmed in the process of this. Um, you know, and so I would say for any of your listeners out there who are thinking about that, just make sure that the person that you're working with is really, really well trained. It is somehow held to um, a board of ethics. So, you know, historically, people have obviously gone to kind of underground guides in the past. And one of the troubles with an underground guide is that if they do something to harm you, you don't have any real recourse because essentially you've done something illegal and they've done something illegal. Um, whereas with psychedelic therapy, if you use someone, if you go to somebody who's licensed, you can always make a complaint against that person's license or with the accrediting board. And so I just think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Um, you know, some really bad 
things could happen and it could kind of uh, knock over the apple cart and, you know, we could find ourselves back where we were in, you know, the 90s, you know, when there was no research being done, when there was no work um, really to speak of um, with regard to using psychedelics therapeutically. So be careful. Last, <laughs> last year, I had a gentleman on who was, you know, he talked about psychedelics too. And he mentioned that this research, you just said that there's not much research on it to support uh, its valid use. He mentioned that this research actually had had been done and had gone back as far back as the 1950s. So now we're talking 70 years ago. Mm -hmm. That, in, Of course, it was taken on under by the federal government. It was used in test experiments. Sure. And they... He 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 mentioned the fact that the reason why psychedelics have been very uh, have been made illegal and discouraged is because they couldn't find any good way to use it for their own purpose. In other words, they were trying to mm. they were trying to essentially weaponize it. You know, mm. it, was, it was it was the Cold War. They were looking for ways to get a you know uh, advantages over the Soviet Union, and psychedelics didn't prove to them or didn't give them anything that they found useful. In other words, it didn't help anything creating some sort of super soldier. Hmm. You know, if, if anything, it kind of did the opposite. It just, it made them, made people more calm. It didn't make them yeah. more violent and fierce, you know? Uh, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if I didn't verify any of this. I have no reason to think, well, I have no reason to think that he's lying to me or sure. reason yeah. that he's embellishing to me. Yeah. Um, but I know I'm kind of really going out there on this here, but you know, just to kind of like dovetail what you're telling me, what he, what he told me like a year ago. I wonder, what do you think on that? Well, I, you know, I, the truth is there certainly was a lot of research to support its use in psychotherapy. Um, you know, so I have no idea. I'm obviously I've seen a movie here and there on heard a podcast about, uh, and you know, read the, uh, Charlie Manson CIA book that came out a while ago. Um, so I do know that there's a really complicated history, but in terms of its use therapeutically, there was strong evidence. I mean, it wasn't, you know, anywhere as well researched as what we have with, you know, traditional psychiatric medications where we have tons and tons of studies. Um, but there was an evidence supported thing. I mean, I think that where we went wrong, of course, or where things, you know, for LSD was just sort of the moment that we were in of, the counterculture and, um, you know, Timothy Leary being pretty irresponsible with how that was kind of rolled out by uh, unknowingly testing LSD on undergrads at Harvard. I mean, it's a really terrible thing. And people were certainly traumatized by it. I mean, the I think the Unabomber was in those tests. So, I mean, it was not something that, um, you know, was, was, he, was he really? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Well, that, that, that would explain at least some things, maybe not everything, but some things. Yeah. Um, so I would say that with LSD, I mean, I think, um, with MDMA, you know, it was being used, uh, therapeutically, uh, since Sasha Shulgin, uh, sort of isolated that sub, that sort of chemical. Uh, and then it was kind of in the eighties and the nineties when kind of club kids got a hold of it, that it became something that was rescheduled. So there was this nice period of, I know, 10 years where people were using MDMA and, and therapy. Um, and then, you know, then it was outlawed. Uh, and then after that, there was basically no research. Um, and I think things just got so desperate that the FDA started approving, um, you know, 
research studies from Hopkins, from NYU, um, from Stanford on psychedelics kind of in the um, late late oddies. Uh, and from there, we've just, you know, slowly built up a really good research base for efficacy. Um, but, you know, with the caveat that these are still pretty small numbers, you know, uh, it's really hard to do that research and the research studies are really, really rigorous and they tend to have somewhat small numbers. And so whether or not this is going to be like a cure that can be generalized to the population where lots of people can be helped and lots of people can be healed. I mean, I think that remains to be seen. We're going to have to wait for FDA approval to really be able to make that judgment. Is that really these, is that really the standard that they look for? Can we just like cure a whole bunch of people? I mean, it doesn't seem like very much out there in general really, really cures anybody of anything. Like you said, like everything seems to be pointed towards symptom reduction and not actually addressing the problem. Well, I mean, you know, you, you're at, you're involved in health and fitness. And so, so right. much of what you're doing is actually healing. You know, it's preventative work. It's like, you know, cutting off um, the trajectory and the course of a disease early on. And, you know, I would say something like heart surgery is cure rather than, you know, taking statins, which is a symptom reduction. Um, so it is a little bit different. And I don't think we're going to judge it by that. You know, I think if that is our bar, then we are going to fail woefully because, um, you know, nothing is ever going to be a silver bullet cure. Do I think it has a lot of potential to help a lot of people? Absolutely. Um, is it going to help everyone? No. Do we know why it does and why it does it? Again, no. Um, so, <laughs> Yeah. So maybe therein lies the problem. We have just a lot more questions than we have answers, but you got to start somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's kind of one of the things I love about my field is that, you know, I could spend a whole lifetime studying this and understanding this and it's still just like scratching the surface. It's sort of endlessly fascinating and always room to learn. So let's go kind of go back a little bit to the beginning of your story here, because you you are you are going through it was a road trip on the west coast and around California. Yeah, yeah yeah i was going through okay. a road trip on the west coast and was going through kind of a breakup at the time you know somebody okay. had been seeing you know been in a long-term relationship and um you know he you know had a somebody who'd been recovery for a long time and had had a relapse and it was just a really devastating realization um and you know it was really difficult for me. Here I was this kind of professor and, you know, I was teaching a class on addiction and talking to my students about, you know, how addiction happens in the family. And then it sort of hits me and my own. And, um, you know, you know, the choice of staying with someone or not staying with somebody who's struggling with an addiction is such a personal one. Um, and, you know, it weighed really heavily on me figuring out kind of what I needed to do. And, um, you know, I think that the psychedelics really helped um, clarify you know, what path I was on, um, and helped me, you know, make a choice that, um, reflected my own inner wisdom, uh, and a time when it was very confusing and things were really nutty. Um, so yeah, that was a really, it was a difficult, <laughs> it was a difficult time right. to say the least. Yeah. So you kind of found yourself in with, um, kind of, like you said, internal conflict here, like you, you teach a class, you teach one thing, but then you have this some, you have something completely different in your life and you're not really sure how to respond to it. I think that's kind of a, a situation a lot of us find ourselves in, not, like not, be, not being able to apply our own advice here. You know, totally. Or just, you know, 
like you said, just feeling lost. But then you came across somebody with who had psychedelics on hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of impressed, like given what you just went through, I'm kind of impressed that you were even willing to do it. I would, I would think that, you know, your your aversion to drugs at all would be kind of heightened, if not, if anything. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. I guess I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, honestly, um, you know, I think that that book was a really powerful one to read. And I was kind of desperate. I mean, I'll be honest. I just was like, you know, uh, at one point I was in Mount Shasta and right next to my hotel was like this astrologer. And I was like is this a sign? Should I go get my chart read? Um, so I just was sort of looking for, you know, guidance anywhere. And, um, you know, and it was just like one of those things where I was randomly talking to this guy, dude with a mustache and mustache and a surfboard. And I was saying, you know, what I did and I've been reading this book and it was just like, Oh, I think it's really promising. And he was like, well, would you like some mushrooms? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> So, um, yeah, that's kind of how it unfolded. And I, and I can, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm able to distinguish between psilocybin and, um, you know, opioid use, you know, that, right. you know, they're pretty different. So in my book, so after that experience and then you kind of, it was a life changer and a career changer, um, also as well. Um, uh. so when did the shift in your career happen from there? Was it pretty much automatic or was it like, was it just more gradual? Well, I think um, one of the things that was a little unclear to me, you know, you're like, you read this exciting book and, you know, I'm always like, well, what does this mean for me in my therapeutic practice? Um, and there really, at the time, kind of weren't any, um, you know, weren't a lot of avenues for getting training in this um, regard. And so, you know, the pandemic hit and I was quarantined alone. And so uh, I started looking around and it turns out Portland had this um, great psychedelic society that would host a lot of really interesting Zoom calls. And one of the um, sessions that I attended was with uh, a woman who um, did this work and she was advocating for kind of like low dose journeys. And I was just really impressed with her knowledge of, um, of trauma, of therapy, of different kind of models and sort of how to treat them. So she was also, you know, she was talking about psychedelic experience, but she also was sort of translating it into the language that I was really familiar with as a clinician. And so I emailed her and was like, Hey, do you ever take, on uh, apprentices. And she was like, actually, I have a small training program that I'm starting up now. So I joined that and, you know, did that for a while and um, then did some training with uh, ketamine because, you know, I wanted to be able to practice it, but wasn't interested in doing anything underground. Um, so anyway, that was kind of my next training. And then over the summer, um, this summer here, so we're in 2023, uh, I did the MAPS MDMA um, immersive therapist training program this summer, which hopefully will be uh, a big step in the credentialing process to be able to provide MDMA therapy when it is ideally approved by next summer. So, um, yeah, so it's just been a little bit of a slow progress. You know, I continue to sort of just see clients doing regular counseling in the intervening years, but now really have shifted my practice to, you know, mostly doing only psychedelics, um, which I really like, you know, that's kind of the work that I feel most excited about. 
it's just very different than anything I learned when I was in grad school and how I was trained to work. Um, but it really fits well with me. And, um, you know, I think is kind of a exciting layer of sort of seeing myself as a healer in a way that maybe, um, traditional psychotherapists don't really see themselves, you know? Um, so yeah, it's really been a change, great game changer. And, uh, I am really excited. It's like put me in contact with a lot of really wonderful, interesting people who are also doing this work and who are researchers and who are elders kind of of the psychedelic field. So, um, yeah, it's, it's cool. How did your uh, colleagues at the time respond to your kind of your uh, your change in career trajectory and practice, essentially? I mean, because I know like academic environments, they're supposed to be like cauldrons of innovation, but a lot of times they're just kind of like, there's kind of like gatekeepers to the status quo a lot of times, sadly. Oh, um, yeah. And I know that new things that are brought to people that are brought up or want or they're expressed to be, they have their curiosity to explore at the very least, which is, which is what you're supposed to do. Um, yeah. It usually hits a lot of walls um, because again, not only are there laws that worry about, they're also worried about money and funding. Mm -hmm. So things totally. like that, but you know, what was that like for you? Yeah, that's a really, um, a really cool question to sort of think through. Um, you know, it's really changed a lot in the last nine months. Um, but kind of at first, I just sort of didn't say anything about it. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, whenever I would, you know, mention that I was doing a training or something, I'd be like, oh, it's a trauma training. And I wouldn't get any more specific than that. Um, but, you know, I think you're really right that higher education, particularly the field that I'm in. So I'm in, you know, a counseling program and it has this very um, aggressive accrediting body. And so our program really has to comport to this very strict regular, this very strict set of conditions in order to graduate people that are licensed elig eligible. And, you know, part of that is like training and addiction and kind of the model of, of drugs and the conversations around drugs. They're always around kind of like drugs are bad, abstinence based. And, um, so, you know, really kind of coming at it from a harm reduction lens and, and, you know, that I would say that that's tends to be how I talk about it in my coursework every now and then I'll give a small little presentation on psychedelic therapy. Um, but the way it kind of fits in the curriculum is really just talking about harm reduction. Um, you know, we certainly don't have any classes on psychedelic therapy at my university. I would love at some point to be able to kind of have an elective or you know, maybe a special licensure training or a certificate program, just because I feel like um, it's a really cool opportunity and they're going to need a lot of therapists to go and do this work. And, um, you know, master's level counselors, master's level social workers are probably going to be a really good um, source of clinicians to deliver these services. Well, like you said earlier, I mean, I have to think that this could already be a reality if we didn't have like certain people who use it in a very irresponsible manner, like Timothy Leary, you know, just without people's consent, just drugging them, um, which is abhorrent mm -hmm. under, any, under any circumstance, doing something to anybody without their knowledge and consent, you yeah. know, especially in clinical environments. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think that's probably a, uh, a legacy that you're running up against when you when you talk about this, particularly in um, 
scholarly environments. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is one of those things where uh, it has a bad history. And also, again, going back to the politics of, you know, um, you know, working for state public institutions. And this is something that's like federally banned. Um, yeah, I have a couple of colleagues out in Oregon and I'm always just like, hey, have you thought about a certificate program? And, you know, they looked into it. And I think that the logistics of having a program to train people to be psycho you know, to be uh, psychedelic therapists were just, it was just too far afield for, you know, a state institution to really get their, get behind. Um, I think that will eventually change. I mean, mm -hmm. my hope is that, um, you know, we're going to start to really see movement. Um, you know, I think that once the VA and kind of once Medicare and Medicaid kind of get on board with um, funding and supporting and paying for these treatments, everybody's going to have there's just going to be a lot more access to them. So that's kind of the exciting piece of the puzzle um, is that I do think that there are great economists and great attorneys and people who are, you know, um, skilled in ways I am not are kind of fighting that fight right now. And I'm optimistic and hopeful that um, in the future, this is something that will be offered in your uh, employee insurance plan or your, um, you know, healthcare marketplace plan. Might be a while, but I think it'll happen. Yeah, yeah it probably will be around a while because you're talking about uh, kind of a major cultural shift here, and that takes you know at least a generation. Sorry, sorry to say. Yeah, uh, but uh, you know, so so the use of psychedelics. I know this is kind of hard for you to quantify, really, um, but to just kind of give people a or an idea about what what they're in for should they go this route here and judging by what you say it may not be so readily accessible depending on where you are mm. um i don't think i'm going to find really anything in iowa that would help me with this um i probably would have to go to some place like oregon <laughs> i think that's <laughs> probably a, a, a probably a choice a lot of people would run up against yeah but, um what what do you think are some of the more kind of interesting uh, realizations that you've had during this career here. I mean, have you had, have you pretty much had the, I know this is very personal, but have you pretty much had the encounters that you think you were expecting to have, or did you, when you were working with clients or mm. was it like, wow, I didn't foresee that really yeah. the case at all? <laughs> well, you know, it's always um, one of those things where I think like life and science and practice, they, they sort of mutually influence one another. And you know, one of the things I think I really learned from my experience in 2019 with my breakup and um, with my, um, you know, time in, uh, you know, with addiction was just this idea that, like, I have a lot less control over things than I thought I did. Um, and I'm not as powerful as I think I am. And I'm also um, not like I can't heal anyone, really. I can't fix anyone else. That really is something that is totally an internal process. I can help support it. I can help care for someone. I can help someone move on that road. And so one of the things that's really unique about psychedelics is that uh, it has this idea, it sort of makes use of this idea that the body is always moving towards um, healing and towards homeostasis. But often we just don't have the resources or the environment to really permit that kind of healing. Um, and so I think what's been wonderful about psychedelics is that it's really given me a way to work where I allow, you know, I, I believe each person has an inner healer and uh, 
the psychedelic experience helps them to get in touch with that. It helps create space for healing to happen. Um, and I think that that really is the, um, the upshot of what my experience in 2016 was, was that I'm pretty powerless in the world and I can't fix anybody who isn't wanting to move in that direction on their own. And I have very little to sort of do with it. Um, and so I think that that's been one of the biggest realizations and something, you know, that I try to tell my students, you know, about, you know, that, you know, this is, this, there are a lot of things that are totally out of your control as a clinician and, it's great that, that that that's the case because, you know, none of us are supposed to be that powerful. This is the healing journey is one, you know, we have to kind of go on on our own. Um, and we, obviously we can have guides along the way and we can have mentors and we can have teachers and people to support us. But ultimately it is an inside job. Um, so that's been the biggest learning thing. You know, I used to think like, oh, I'm just going to learn this great technique. I'm going to learn DBT, I'm going to learn, you know, AEDP, and I'm going to be able to help all of these people. And, you know, now I just don't really think technique or even theoretical orientation is all that important. So it's just been, yeah, I've really moved far from where I was when I started. What do you think uh, psychedelics has um, on chances on helping uh, children or people under, under the age of 18? Oh yeah. Um, through through traumatic events, because I asked this because years and years ago I, I worked in a children's home. Essentially, it was a residential facility for at risk youth. So these are kids mm -hmm. that come in for any number of backgrounds for any number of reasons. Some of their behaviors were psychological, like like psychiatric reasons. Others were mm -hmm. just more behavioral. Um, I can see that. I can just now see that being problematic because one, their age, and two, we know that the, the brain chemistry of a child is much mm -hmm. different than it is from an adult. Yeah. Um, we, used to, we used to think that if you, once you hit a certain age as an adult, your brain just freezes in place and never changes from that point on. But we now know that's not even close to being the case. So, I mean, it's tricky just working with a fully formed adult. Totally. Um, but but if we're now we're talking about kids, has this even been proposed at all? Yeah, well, you bring up a really interesting point is that, you know, the idea of consent um, to this treatment is really mm -hmm. hard to give fully, to have yeah. that fully informed consent, because it's sort of an experience that you've never had before. Um, there's a paper that came out recently that sort of uh, said it was like becoming a parent or becoming a vampire. Like, you know, you have no way of knowing what both of those experiences are going to be like, and you're being asked to sort of consent to do them before you do them. Um, and so I think that's a challenge with adults as well too, unless they've had a lot of experience with psychedelics, being able to kind of get them to fully consent and know what they're getting into is challenging. Um, and for children, it's even more challenging. Um, you know, I know that there are certainly people who are doing ketamine therapy um, with people who are minors, with people who are under 18, but I would be surprised if it's anybody younger than maybe 13. Um, I have heard um, in kind of conversations that there are um, sort of small scale set studies with other um, psychedelic medicines or investigational products, I guess I should call them, um, with people who are under the age of 18. I mean, it's a tricky, it's tricky because, you know, it's like, do we offer this treatment early and really uh, divert the course of an illness from 
becoming debilitating so that people can't, you know, have the lives that they want. So it interrupts their education and interrupts their job thing. And, you know, to me, I feel like that's sort of a powerful argument. You know, if we could uh, take a child who was traumatized significantly and have them have this treatment and they could have some relief and some healing early on, I don't know, it feels like it would be a worthwhile risk. Um, but I also recognize that's going to be ethically thorny and hard and who knows if they'll ever be approved. Um, maybe in smaller doses, maybe kind of small treatments that could happen. Um, but it certainly is on the radar of people who are doing research is, you know, what does this mean for kids? Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's not really, I mean, it's not great to have kids on, you know, some of these high level antipsychotics that a lot of them are on, particularly, you know, when they do have significant behavioral disorders, you know, I mean, that you know, the side effects of those are sometimes irreversible and, um, you know, it really, and beyond the side effects, you know, the, the issues of kind of weight gain and metabolic disease that come along with a lot of psychiatric issues. I mean, it really is just one of those things where really, um, you know, we have to pick our poison <laughs> in terms yeah. of treatment. Yeah, you really do. I remember even thinking like, because I remember that when I worked in this, in this facility, we were giving some of these kids medications that I kind of found out later on, you're not even supposed to be subscribing. They don't recommend subscribing to people who are not at least 18 years old. Yeah. And yet we're giving it to them on a daily basis here. Yeah. Yeah. That, that off-label prescribing happens a lot, um, you know, and uh, basically it's kind of a weird paradox. So uh, like Prozac has something that we would call the black black box label on it, um, which basically means that in children and adolescents, there have been studies to find that, you know, it induces some suicidality. Uh, and so there's this black box label on Prozac. And because there's this black box label on Prozac, it feels like it's a much more sort of risky medication than say, you know, another one like Risperidol or, um, Abilify. But the truth of the matter is, is that no one's done studies on a, those medications. So there's no black box warning. So there's this sort of false sense of security because we don't know what will happen. Uh, and I think that happens a lot in psychiatric situations where it's like, well, there's a black box warning. So let's prescribe something else, even if it's never been tested in an adolescent population. So. <laughs> ah, that's 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 very that's very interesting and alarming. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so I mean, you still you have this practice. Do you, I, I gather you still work in academics, right? You still yeah, I, I do. Oh. I mean, my my clinical practice is pretty small. I'm not certainly okay. I'm very much part time, and yeah. you know, part of it is that I really only want to do this work, and so really only want to take clients that want to do this work, and so it's a little bit of a self selecting bunch. And I am in kind right. of a remote spot, um, but yeah, I'm still you know full time counselor educator. Still do some research. Um, you know, um, and really feel, um, you know, I, I love teaching, um, but I also love clinical work. So I don't know how right. much longer, how long-term I'm going to, you know, be an educator. I might at some point, you know, switch how just do you, to uh, doing practice. How do you select the people that you want to work with? How do you, how do you filter the, the ones that, you know, are good for this and the others who are just kind of looky-loos kind of fishing around? Yeah, well, I certainly get a lot of emails from people who are curious. Um, and, you know, I think that um, 
when, you know, rubber hits the road, it often is about the cost of doing this. It's certainly not a cheap treatment. Um, and so I think that that kind of weeds a lot of folks out is just the, um, you know, the expense of doing this. Um, and I also think, um, you know, I had another, uh, you know, I've had other people who have kind of gotten in touch who don't seem like their lives are in particularly stable places. And so for me, that's really some reason, a reason to kind of not proceed with treatment because this can be, um, it can be pretty destabilizing in your life and in your relationships and the way that you sort of see yourselves. And if you're not kind of well-resourced, if you're, you know, recently sober, um, it's probably not a great choice for, um, for you. And so that sometimes is uh, disappointing to people, but I'm a teacher. I'm used to, <laughs> I'm used to getting bad teaching evaluations. And so, yeah. you know, I'm, I can live with people not liking me. <laughs> So in your practice here, you still work in academics, but you have this practice. It's small now. Are do you is is that is do you have designs of just wanting to blow it up and go full time? Yeah, I would love that, you know, and I think I probably will move in that general direction in the next couple of years. Um, you know, I think that uh that so much of it is about relationship and I think the people that, you know, would be a good fit for me and I would be a good fit for them. I think that they're um, they are out there and they are in plenty. And I am enthusiastic about providing this treatment to folks who, um, you know, are really looking for a different experience. Um, and, you know, um, yeah, I just think it's, I think it's really exciting work. It's certainly hard work, you know, it's definitely longer days than maybe I'm used to. Uh, you know, most counseling sessions are 50 minutes and this is somewhere between two and eight hours. Um, at once. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it does uh, have additional kind of levels of, of, of challenges, but uh, I don't know. I feel like it was the thing I was called to do. So uh, I have a lot of trust in the universe and have a feeling that it will all kind of come together for, for that. And I look forward to, you know, being witness to the healing of lots of people. I mean, I think that's really the part that's just amazing to get to see. Um, you know, I think, uh, there's this element of psychedelic work that has, uh, kind of a, there's almost like a mothering component to it. Um, you know, where the people who are on, you're under the influence and you're really, really vulnerable. Uh, and you do have this person who's there and is there to hold your hand is there to pull a blanket up on you and to make sure that you're warm enough. And, um, you know, to just be there in this different way, you know, and it's not at all what a therapist is going to do, you know, who's sitting across the room from you for 50 minutes at a time. It's just a different level of kind of contact. Um, and, you know, for people who have had challenges with their caregivers, maybe history of um, develop what we call developmental trauma, um, it's a really powerful experience to be able to receive that sort of care and that sort of attention and that sort of support. Um, and so uh, I think that's just another kind of piece of it that's really magical and special and unlike anything else that is out there in terms of the therapeutic or kind of coaching world. And we have a closing tradition on this podcast where the guest is um, asked to give the listeners 
one thing to remember, if nothing else, and one thing only, if they can remember nothing else from, you know, from being on from about nearly an hour here and having talked about so much and covered so much ground here, what's one yeah. thing you'd like to live, you'd like to leave people? What I would like them to remember from this podcast is that that there is a part of you that knows exactly what you need to heal. And there is a part of you that is in touch um, with how to go about doing it. And then there is also another part of you that um, is untouched by the painful, difficult things that you have been through in your life that is whole and that is intact. Um, and that I think psychedelics are a way of getting in touch with that part of you that remains uh, unchanged and unmoved by the challenges and the suffering that you've faced in your life. So that would be what I would hope everyone would know. <laughs> And Matt, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. This has been a really helpful conversation. I just loved all of your questions and the ideas that you had. They were really provocative. Good. <laughs> Good. I, I do try. I do try. So, you know, I uh, try to ask questions I think, one, are appropriate, and two, actually kind of, you know, you know, I, I guess in my own kind of host, host, hosting, ugh, hosting my own kind of therapy session here myself here, because I'm mm. just peppering somebody with questions, 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 but I try to make them worth asking yeah. and worth, and worth, and worth answering. So not a yeah. problem. I'm glad that um, you were able to come on and I really appreciate all your information. I really appreciate the time you've given me and uh, I'm sure everyone listening here appreciates it as well. So those of you who are listening, you know what to expect. I'm going to put all the contact information to Anne in the show notes i'll put website put social media it'll be all the it'll all be there you can contact me as well as uh the information will be there as it always is but this is ann metz she is a um psychotherapist specializing in the use of psychedelics and therapeutic sessions thank you again for coming on Anne, and thank you to everyone who is listening everyone who ever will listen this is the fitness reborn podcast i'm sean Peace out. Till next time, move forever. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can become a supporter of the show by becoming a monthly subscriber. No commitments. Cancel anytime. Every little bit helps, and I'd sure love your support. Also, you can click any of the links to our social media platforms provided in the show notes, and you can email me at renfitnesswarriors at gmail.com. That's Ren, R-E-N, fitnesswarriors at gmail.com. If you got a fitness story to tell, I'd love to hear it. And you never know, you might just find yourself on the show. Until next time, train hard. Peace.